I'm here with Cinta Kaipat, co-founder of Watch, one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit against the Navy, which aims to at least stall them in their attempts to turn Pagan and Tinian into training ranges. Cinta, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Sophie, for having me. Happy to be here. <laughs> so, um, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship to Pagan? Sure. First of all, I was born on Agrigan, which is the island north of Pagan. And we lived there until I was about four. And uh, at that time, in the mid-60s, my dad, who was running the agriculture program for the Marianas, moved us to Saipan. And we were living in Kaiman. Back then, it was not developed. Uh, there were No one was living out there except for us. A lot of cows at that time. <laughs> uh, it's not like the Kaiman that we know today. Then my uh, dad's older brother, Uncle Seraphine, convinced my dad to run for political office because he said to him, he says, you know, you have the benefit of an education. Because my dad actually uh, went off to attend the University of Hawaii and he was uh, earned his agriculture degree there. And what was your father's name? Uh, Francisco Borja Kaipad. And so he... Um, not that politics was ever on his horizon, but he decided to uh, help as the people were asking for him to help them in that capacity as a political leader. So he ran uh, for political office to represent the Northern Islands, and he won. So he became the congressman representing the Northern Islands. Mm -hmm. So he moved my family to Pagan in the 60s. He also served as our island medic, so he was also running the, um, it was just a small tin shack, actually, as the dispensary that I can recall. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what Pagan was like in the 60s? Very isolated. Um, it was very much different from the hustle and bustle of the main island, which is Saipan. Mm -hmm. Back then, and that people um, earned their living by farming and fishing, as well as um, there was a thriving copra industry. Copra is uh, dried coconut meat. Back then, we were also fortunate because we had regular transportation back and forth to the Northern Islands. So, the, so we had these supply ships, the cargo ships that would bring cargoes up north uh, and bring passengers back and forth. Because you were exporting copra. Right. Yes, we were exporting. Exactly, exactly. So we had that uh, regular transportation, and uh, people would sell the copra, and then they would buy things that we normally didn't have uh, on the island because we didn't, you know, it was just isolated, you know, small island community. We didn't have stores or no anything. Stores. No stores, no running water, mm -hmm. no electricity. People use bull carts to transport and get around, or they just walked. Mm -hmm. But because of my dad's position, he was uh, able to be given a couple jeeps. So that looks kind of funny on an island where everyone is going around on bull carts, and, <laughs> and so we had the only jeep. But getting back to my dad's uh, initial connection to Pagan, back in the 60s, as I, I said, before he moved us up there, he was given uh, some money. He was a project manager to try and fix up that dirt airstrip. 
So it was pretty much a, a manual labor. He managed to recruit all the villagers, men, women, including my first grade uh, Peace Corps teachers, okay. Wayne and Carol Woldrum. Mm -hmm. And they all uh, did their labor of love, mm -hmm. no machinery or of anything, so it was very difficult work and hot, but they managed to patch up, they did their best and patched up that airstrip, so I believe it was like in 65 or so when the first inaugural flight went up to Pagan, and if I'm not mistaken, it's called the Spirit of Hope, and that's the airplane that went up there, and I recall as a child how the airplane would come, you know, such a, we were so isolated that it was such a big event to welcome an airplane that would land on Pagan. Pagan had the only airstrip in the Northern Islands. Pagan situated between Agrigan to the north and Alamagan to the south. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time that we were living there, those are the only other two islands that were populated mm -hmm. in the 60s. My dad ended up recruiting the Air Force from Guam. This is like in the 70s and my family had obviously already established ourselves mm -hmm. on Pagan. And we were actually living in the very first house that my dad built for us. Mm -hmm. And I recall standing with my mom on our front porch looking up to the airstrip and seeing the bulldozer, you know, just moving and, you know, they were they're expanding the, the airstrip and doing their work and so sort of like more intense machinery is making it oh yes by this time they were able to bring in the heavy equipment that was not available at the time that my dad initially organized the right. people to reclaim the dirt airstrip can you give me like a ballpark of how many people were on the island i think that maybe like 50 some people at this time. Okay, so, so it was a very community. small community. Yeah. But with its own value, right? Yes. It was worth it to bring these ships up. It was worth it to bring these Oh, absolutely. Up. My dad had, had um, you know, I sound like a, a daughter who idolized her father whenever I say these things, but actually other people have uh, documented this and have shared. Not only we see the elected congressman representing all the Northern Islands, but that also included his role as the, they called it the distad representative. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was the bridge to the main capital, which is Saipan, the, the main administration, I would say, as the main seat of government. And uh, of course, I mentioned that he was also, because of his medical training, he was also the medic. So he delivered my younger sister, Cecilia, on Pagan, actually. It was just like a doctor congressman. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> he wore a lot of hats, for sure. Um, of course, he didn't just deliver my sister, he delivered other babies up there. You know, what happened was when he uh, managed to bring up the Air Force, I call it the Air Force Prime Beef Team. <laughs> I remember <laughs> that, yes. Prime I remember Prime Beef. Prime Beef. <laughs> Why? Why Prime Beef? I was too young to even ask. <laughs> but I remember um, part of what they did on Pagan, which is a very positive interaction with the military, actually, mm -hmm. was they not only built the airstrip, but they also built this uh, concrete uh, dispensary. We actually had uh, electricity 
and we had running water, flush toilet, you know, so... That's a big change from the 60s. Very, right? yeah, yeah, very big change from that tin house that my dad worked out of, yeah. you know, as, as the medical practitioner on, on the entire island, to now we have the modern amenities. So that was really helpful, and I, I recall that when the Air Force first came up to Pagan and they were staying at the schoolhouse, and my mom came out at night and she sees this flicker, like, you know, some light flickering, and she said to my dad, <laughs> she said, I think those guys are watching movies. Do you, <laughs> do you think you can ask them to uh, invite us sometimes so we can watch movies with them? And so my dad did. So. It was very nice because we would have movie nights in the you know line, and um, you know I became acquainted with shows like uh, Mission Impossible mm. and Ironside and all <laughs> other shows that were being shown you know in Saipan that I wasn't seeing. I think I um, the only thing I didn't enjoy as a child watching were those football games. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't quite have the appreciation for that yet, but. It showed the, the kind of interaction that people had with the military then. Very peaceful. They were very, yeah, working very together. working together. And my dad was always looking for ways to not only develop the natural resources that we had there, because he, he was way ahead of his time. And his, his goal, his vision, was to find something that we can grow up there. And enter into a regional export type of situation with like Australia, Japan, mm -hmm. New Zealand, Micronesia, Hawaii. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I, can, I can attest to this personally because I saw it, I experienced it, I tasted it. Mm -hmm. He was able to grow the famous dough pineapple on Pagan mm -hmm. and he grew it bigger and sweeter. And I think that uh, he had a vision towards us growing pineapples as well, but sort of the improved version. <laughs> he was in many ways setting the groundwork for, he, he, for a, a colon or a community on Pagan that has exporting capabilities, that has you know medicine and electricity and water and just sort of a thriving community. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, as I um, said before, he was so into developing our natural resources uh, that it didn't stop there. His desire was to make sure that our people were also trained. So for example, when the military was there, he assigned the different young members of our community, my relatives, my cousins, uh, like for example, the, this gentleman later became one of the mayors of the Northern Islands in our modern time. Mm. But back then he was like my dad's right hand, my cousin Tobias Aldon. Mm -hmm. And so he said, he assigned him, he says, Toby, uh, you go and work with the um, people, the military folks and learn about electricity because we need to know about electricity and you, you could be the head electrical guy. Mm -hmm. So he apprenticed with the Air Force and, and later on, and they even sent him later on to Saipan to do some additional training. My cousin Diego Kaipad, who is currently running for mayor of Northern Islands, said that my dad influenced him in going to the medical profession because my dad said to him, Diego, 
you we need medical people here so I want you to follow around the, the doctor and you and my brother Fernando follow them around and assist them and learn as much as you can so later on my cousin went into the nursing profession and actually retired as a nurse uh, here at our uh, local hospital CHCC Commonwealth Health uh, Corporation. Sounds like uh, your father planted seeds in a lot of different He did. And another thing that he did was back then, in the 60s, uh, we only had one hotel here. Mm -hmm. uh, this was the Royal Taga Hotel, owned by the Jones family. Mm -hmm. And while my brother, my oldest brother Chris, was still in high school, my dad uh, got him a job there working to learn about the hospitality industry. Mm -hmm. So he was working for the hotel. And then later on, when he graduated from high school, my dad immediately sent him off to a maritime school to learn how to be a captain, ship captain, because he said to him, we need transportation mm -hmm. and we need ship captains, so you need to go and learn how to be a ship captain so that we can have a, a captain mm -hmm. uh, ferrying passengers and cargo back and forth. Toby Aldon's um, younger brother, Ben, uh, was assigned to be an assistant teacher with my Peace Corps teachers because my dad said to him, one day the Peace Corps will not be here mm -hmm. anymore, so you need to learn to be a teacher. So he set up, uh, I mean, he planted seeds for transportation, for education, for electricity, for medicine, yes. all of these things that are necessary for a thriving community, and he saw the potential in Pogman for that to exist. My understanding is that other people in the CNMI government saw a different potential in Pagan. Was it used, I heard it was used as a penal colony as well? Yes, uh, you know, that was a very unfortunate thing because uh, I don't know whose grand idea it was, but it certainly came from central government. The people who have more power, more authority over us, uh, you know, in the uh, farther reaches of the Commonwealth. It was before the Commonwealth then, because we were still under the trust territory. But they, somehow they decided that it was a good idea to exile murderers up into our community, which is uh, the island of Pagan. Uh, obviously, there are no jails up there. Uh, so any kind of uh, unrest or, you know, people just... Uh, living life. You know, there's conflicts sometimes, right? Even among families mm -hmm. and stuff, but there was no, nothing serious. You didn't really need jail. You didn't need a jail up mm -hmm. there. But somehow, we ended up being the quote-unquote hosts mm -hmm. of uh, some murderers, a couple murderers that the... People just, they sent two murderers up there? Yes, they did. That sounds they so did. bizarre. One, one person was from Rhoda, okay. and the other was from Saipan. And uh, they basically put my father in charge, obviously, because he, he wore many hats. And one of the hats he wore was he was also our main enforcement person on the island. But later on in the 70s, I recall that all of a sudden uh, the population of the island had increased. But there was something different about, about these people. What happened was that one of the murderers that was exiled up there, eventually turned around and killed, murdered my father. And not only did he murder my father, and this happened on the eve of my dad trying to 
rescue a little girl who had fallen and injured herself on the island south of Pagan, Koralamagan. And he was very busy that afternoon. I remember going to the water with him because he was sending two of my my relatives, actually the late mayor of Pagan, Toby Don, who eventually succeeded my dad, and my cousin Serafini. He put them in the speedboat with a walkie-talkie and send them to go and retrieve the girl from Alamagan. And uh, that evening, uh, he was busy talking to the military in Guam, trying to arrange for the rescue plane to be sent up to pick up this little girl. So one of the people living there, he was uh, the son, one of the sons of my dad's political rival, actually, was involved in a domestic dispute, ended up beating up his wife, threw her out of the house. She ended up seeking refuge at my house. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, to make a long story short, her husband sent the murderer from Rhoda to my house to go and retrieve his wife, who had sought refuge at my house. Mm-hmm. And my dad would have none, none of that. Mm-hmm. And so the guy left turned off the generator, plunged the house into darkness, returned with a shotgun. And my dad, who was eating, because he had missed dinner, because he was busy arranging the rescue, was sitting at his desk eating. And I just walked up to him to hand him a glass of water when all of a sudden this explosion happened where he was shot in front of me. And I just, uh, you know, it's just the horrific scene of seeing his body slam back into the chair and um, smoke and the gun smell of gunpowder and me screaming hysterically. Uh, and then, you know, just a blood boom, a second shot, you know, and I'm, I'm just like hysterical jumping up and down. And when I turned around, I saw that my mother had been shot as well, and she was uh, crouching under the table, mm-hmm. you know, holding her bloody head and putting her her finger up to her mouth, telling me to be quiet and telling me, urging me to run and go hide. And and but I, I was just so crazed from this, you know, this trauma that I was I was ten. And I was running back and forth, back and forth between my parents. At one point, I looked through the middle door into the private quarters, and I see my 12-year-old brother uh, who was uh, sleeping in the living room. He was on his stomach, and I remember we made eye contact, and I went to scream, and I think because I was so frightened and so shocked, I couldn't utter a noise, any noise out of my mouth at that time. And then I heard my baby brother, who was seven months old, crying Mm -hmm. in the bedroom. And my instinct immediately was, I have to go get him. I have to save him. Mm -hmm. And on my way into the bedroom, I hear that the guy had then, you know, broken into the house. And he shot through the window? He shot my parents through the window, yes. And then while I was in the bedroom, I heard him, you know, talking to my brother, and basically what my brother was saying was he was pleading with him to stop shooting, and he says, what, are you going to tell me what to do? Boom! So he shoots him. Oh, my God. 
you know, and he just happened to turn his um, head at the last minute and he really got him in the shoulder. And then while I was in there, running, I ran in to scoop up my screaming baby brother. He entered the bedroom and of course I was petrified because I thought, you know, he's going to kill us. Mm -hmm. He came in and he called the woman, called her as to come with me and I... Oh, the, the wife, the battered woman. Yeah, the battered woman. And I tried to very uh, quickly and quietly escape with the baby out of the bedroom. But he, when they came out, he saw me and he gave, gave me an ultimatum. And he says, come with us or I'm going to finish everyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't think twice. Mm -hmm. I knew what I had to do. So I agreed. My immediate priority at that point was to get this monster quickly out of our house right. and save my little siblings. Mm -hmm. So he took me and the, and the woman and he returned her to her husband's compound. Mm -hmm. So apparently there was already a plot to have her take her and take her there to have her husband meet up. Okay. So on the way back I remember he started to take me into the jungle, you know, with my baby brother, and we went behind our old house, and and I heard my um, my uncle Mariano screaming. He was crying and just running down the the road, screaming, "Who shot my brother? Who shot my brother?" And and, and of course, I was just so uh, desperate because I knew that I was way too far into the jungle for him to see and rescue me and my baby brother. Mm -hmm. And so if there was going to be any kind of rescuing, you know, I had to find a way to escape. Mm -hmm. And so he started taking us all the way. We had to walk through really tall sword grass, which is like sugar cane, mm -hmm. but only thinner blades. Mm -hmm. And they cut you and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Like paper cuts yes. Skin, right? Yes. And there was like just a trail, like a footpath they were, that led to the hills very rocky, uh, rough, volcanic rocks. And this is at night time. This is at night time. And he started leading me up and my baby brother started crying and I kept begging him, please, you know, my baby brother's hungry. I need to take him back. And he would not even listen. And so finally when we got up to the top, we climbed up the top of this really rough volcanic hill that overlooks, you can look down and see the village, see my house. And uh, I asked him, I said, so what are you gonna do to us? And he says, well, he says, before they get, they capture me, there's going to be a shootout. And before they get me, I'm gonna kill you first. And- So he's using you as like a hostage or yes. something? Yes. Okay. And so uh, I um, just couldn't accept that kind of fate for my baby brother. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I have to find a way to save him. Mm -hmm. And I say this, you know, my, you know, my honest being to, because people who may hear this um, think, well, you know, that's a bit overdramatic and all that kind of stuff. But when I was, I heard a voice in my head at this time saying, tell him, Menanzu'us. Menanzu'us is a Chamorro word meaning honest to God. And I, I honestly heard that in my head 
honest to God. And I said to him, I said, please let me leave, go back, and I will leave my baby brother beside the road where someone can find him. And I promise I will return. I will return. You may have me, you know, kill me, whatever you want to do, but please let me save my baby brother. When I had been begging previously on the way up, he would always dismiss me. But when I said Menanzuus to him this time, he was quiet. He contemplated what I had said for a few minutes. And then he said to me, he says, all right. He says, you take care of baby brother and you go leave him under the coconut tree that we stopped under on our way up. Because that's, that's when we heard my uncle screaming. Okay, so it's within earshot. The baby could start to cry it, people would know he was there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He says, go leave him there. So I, I promised him, I said, Men and Zeus, I said, I will, I will do that. I said, just give me a chance to send my brother. Mm -hmm. And I'll turn around. And at that precise moment when I made that promise to him, the ground beneath me gave way. And that's why I really believe that the good Lord mm -hmm. came in and saved us. Not only because I was being directed and given the powerful words that made a difference mm -hmm. in this, this murderer's uh, mind, mm -hmm. but the fact that at that precise moment, all of a sudden, the, the ground gave way, and I ended up falling with my baby brother mm -hmm. off, off this side of this cliff. What? Yeah, we fell. And the reason why I firmly believe that this is divine intervention, because at any given point of time, I could have dropped my brother. Mm -hmm. I could have, it was so easy because it was so unexpected. Mm -hmm. I could have just let, just let go, mm -hmm. but I didn't. Instead, what I recall doing was I grabbed onto my baby brother so tightly and I curled up my legs mm -hmm. like, like, like a ball. Close my eyes tightly and just did this mm -hmm. as we were free falling. Just falling. Off yes. The cliff yes. With your baby brother. Yes. Arms. Yes. Mm -hmm. Doing my best to shield him, protect mm -hmm. him from the fall. And then, you know, we just, it, it happened so fast. I mean, just like off the side of that cliff. And then I remember like coming to because I don't know how long I was lying there. And I just remember like opening my eyes and I looked up and my body felt numb. I just remember looking up at the full moon and I was lying in this huge um, bomb crater. No. Yeah, I had fallen into this crater. And looking up and feeling scared, seeing the moonlight stream through the dark, tall trees mm -hmm. and just you know feeling scared and all this kind of stuff I mean I've never been up there by myself let alone you know be up there at night and With under those uh, yeah under mm -hmm. those circumstances and so I um, you know have I was frantic look because I was like you know I wanted to know what happened to my baby brother because I was he was no longer in my arms mm -hmm. and uh, I sat up and he was lying by my feet and I touched him, I checked him over, he was sleeping peacefully. 
Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a miracle. Mm -hmm. And that was like, you know, all these series of miracles that happened that night that really defined my relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, as a young child, to have that kind of experience, you know, firsthand, uh, tells me that someone was there with me. So when I uh, got my baby brother up and saw that he was okay, because I, I started to feel this thing of all my scratches and, mm -hmm. and, and whatnot, but thank God, you know, I didn't break any bones or, or anything. And then I had to look at my next monumental challenge was, was to climb out of this crater holding a, a seven-month-old baby, so meaning that I had to, like, you know, climb up using one hand. How deep would you say the crater was? <laughs> I can't even tell you. Over your head, though, it's like a tiny Oh, oh, definitely. Okay. Definitely. I mean, I'm looking up out okay. of, it was, you know, up, and in, in addition to that, of course, I fell from, from the hill, mm -hmm. the cliff, so. So one uh, side is all sloped as well. Yeah. Where's the murderer? Is he looking for you? At that point, I didn't know. Okay. I didn't know. All, all I could think of was I have to get out of here. Mm -hmm. And I have to find a way to climb up, because I knew that the only way I can escape was to climb up out of that crater. Mm -hmm. And so it was very difficult, because I was holding the baby in my left hand, and it was just so, and I had to claw myself up and crawl. And, mm -hmm. and to be honest with you, um, I look back to a 10-year-old uh, trying to, you know, carry a seven-month-old baby out of uh, a bomb crater, climbing up this rough terrain mm -hmm. uh, with sharp volcanic rocks that cut you. Mm -hmm. It was just, like I said, you know, I know I did not do it myself. I had divine help. And so when I got up, finally reached the top, my next worry was, I'm so disoriented right now. My fear was that if I climb back down, would I find the path that would lead me back to the village? Mm -hmm. Because remember, we had to walk through the tall sword grass. There's right. only like one narrow, very narrow footpath. So I was worried about that. And so I said, well, I need to, to keep going, mm -hmm. keep moving. And so when I climbed down to the bottom of the cliff, that, that hill, I was astounded to discover that I had climbed on down and the path that I was afraid of not finding was right there in front of me. So that's mm -hmm. another miracle mm -hmm. to me. So I'm holding the baby and I'm running as fast as I can because I'm already thinking this guy is behind me. Mm -hmm. He's gonna like show up and, and just like shoot, you know, kill yeah. me. So I'm running because one instruction that he said to me before I fell, he says, take your baby brother and you leave him under that tree. Mm -hmm. And he says, and come back. I'm going to be watching from up here. And if you don't turn around and come back, I'm going to shoot you. Mm -hmm. And as a 10-year-old child, I know nothing about guns or shotguns. Mm -hmm. So to me, the threat that was being made to me was very real. Mm -hmm. That if he said he would shoot me in the back if I don't turn around and return, the bullet as far as I'm concerned, could reach from the top of that, that right. uh, hill all the way into yeah, my, my body. Yeah. I wouldn't know. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't know. I had no way of knowing. Mm -hmm. So I completely believed him when he told me that, if you don't mm -hmm. turn around. 
and come back, I'm going to shoot you. Mm -hmm. And so as I was running, and I got closer to that uh, spot where, where the coconut tree is, or was, all of a sudden I got another message, you know, like when you get there, don't stop. You had to take that risk. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so when I got there, I, I must have stopped like just a fraction of a second. Mm -hmm. And I thought, no, I have to take this chance. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I crossed that line over where I was not supposed to go, mm -hmm. I just remember running, screaming with my back arch, thinking the bullets are flying into my back any time now. Oh. And I remember screaming, you know, like, calling out my mom's name. He's really gonna kill us now. But I needed to be careful because people didn't know where this guy was. Yeah, yeah and they, they, they may panic and, and shoot me. And so with that kind of caution, I slowly made my way back. And I, when I entered the dispensary, of course I entered from the north part, which is the private part. Mm -hmm. It was pitch black. Uh, the only lights in the dispensary were coming from the dispensary part, which is where my parents were. That's, you know, they had moved everyone into, and I was like pounding. This is like, uh, you know, one of those scary horror movies where mm -hmm. the big bad monster is coming behind you and you're pounding on the door. Okay. Let me in, let me in. And nobody would open the door for me. Okay, so let me back, back up. So. The guy had taken me and the woman and my baby brother away from the dispensary. In the meantime, what happened was my poor mother, who always had a, a challenge walking back then because she had a difficult gait. She fell down as a child, and so she ended up with one shorter leg. And she was she'd lost a lot of blood being shot in the head. And she said she had really prayed to God. She says, please, you know, let one of us survive for our kids pleading with, with God that if she couldn't make it, then at least let my dad live, you know, for us. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know that she was even pregnant at the time with my younger sister. Later on, when the authorities showed up at the dispensary, they could see her bloody handprints on the wall as she was trying to, you know, make her way out of the dispensary. My 12-year-old brother was injured. And so she had no choice but to go for help herself. So she and my sister ended up walking. What? Yeah. She was able to walk? Yeah, she ended up, well, she had no choice. Mm -hmm. So she put her hand on my younger sister's head to guide her, and they walked to my uncle's house. And they showed up, and there was pandemonium. Everyone screaming to see how bloody she was. And uh, I understand that, you know, that's when my uncle ran out of the house. Because my, my mom said to him, could you please, would somebody please go and, and see if my husband and child are still alive. Mm. So my uncle ran out of the house and, and just ran, from what I understood, he ran straight to my, then the Peace Corps teachers I had, Cindy and John Burrell. They were my third and fourth grade uh, Peace Corps teachers. Mm. And pounded on their door screaming, crying, come, come. And the irony of this whole thing is that my dad had been training Cindy, my preschool teacher, to give shots and to do some, uh, administer some medical aid whenever he was off island. Those skills that my dad had passed on to her, like it really came into 
play that that night because she was able to, you know, give shots and give administer right. aid and all that kind of stuff. But but what had happened was when no one would open the door for me to enter where they were, I was so scared that this guy was just gonna show up behind me, the murderer. I was just like freaking out and I ran back to hide in the bedroom. I, I went into shock because I remember like feeling as if my body had been dipped into a giant tub of ice water mm. because I started shaking like you wouldn't believe it. You know, just just shaking so uncontrollably, I'm holding the baby and I'm doing this. And then the next miracle happened was that my um, cousin was about the same age as I. He shows up in the bedroom at that precise time. And I remember complaining to him, why won't you guys open the door? And he said, that's when he explained to me, he says, we couldn't open the door because no one knew where this guy was. And so we've locked the doors, we've kept everyone in one room and devised a secret knock. And if you don't know the secret knock, we'll never open the door. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was pretty smart. Although I didn't appreciate it at the time. <laughs> um, but no, they had to figure something out. They had to figure something out, mm-hmm. right. You know, I asked if my parents were dead, and he said, he said no. I asked if my brother was dead, he said no. I was so relieved, I said, well then take me to them. So we had to run back out to where I had entered. I'm scared out of my mind that we will run right into the murderer. This whole time, we ran around the house. He tripped and fell uh, on the porch, and I remember laughing and then stopping myself and saying, what's the matter with you, you know? <laughs> and what a time to be laughing at him, you know? And then he got up and he uh, did the secret knock and the door opened, and I just remember, like someone took the baby from me, and I, I can't even tell you who it was. I don't even remember, but I just remember like my vision, that in, in my line of vision, was my poor mom, and she was at that same table where she had been shot. Her head was completely bandaged. They pulled the table to the to the side. Uh, there were other relatives there. And then, you know, I remember just like walking into the room, and it was just so surreal. And I, I looked to the, my right, and I see my two Peace Corps teachers, and there, one is on the radio talking to doctors, and so the other is doing CPR on my dad, who was still in the chair. And I just remember, and then I hear my uh, 12-year-old uh, brother's uh, cries. <gasps> you know, he's making that noise, and it's very hard for him to breathe. <gasps> you know, he's doing that. And, and I remember walking up to him, and I heard my teacher uh, just, to me at the time, I, I was sensitive, because I felt like she was scolding him, mm-hmm. you know, because she was telling him, don't cry, stop crying. And, you know, to me at the time, I was thinking, why are you doing that to him? You know, he can't help it. He's suffering. Mm -hmm. And then as I got closer to him, I realized why she had to try and get him to stop crying. Because every time he he did that, blood was spurning out of the holes in his shoulder. The poor thing, he was like, um, they leaned him up against the wall. And... You know, and he was doing that. He was just so suffering so horribly, horribly. Because I'll tell you what, that scream, that blood-curdling scream that I heard when I ran into the bedroom to pick up the baby, and and the scream I heard after he, my brother was shot, I it haunts me. 
it haunts me to this day. I never wish to hear that again. So I looked over to my dad being worked on. So I walked over and I said to my teachers, I said, what can I do to help? And so they gave me a pencil and, and with a, you know, eraser. And they said, put this, stick this in his mouth and you have to hold his tongue because we need to clean out the food that, was, that he had been eating because he was eating his dinner when he was shot. So we cleaned, cleaned out his mouth and, this, you know, so CPR continued and they were taking turns, you know, one was exhausted, the other one would take over, what they did, they're communicating with the rescue plane, communicating with the doctors in Saipan. And I just remember it reached a point where I knew that the whole attempt to save my dad's life was futile. I looked at John's face, my preschool teacher's face, it was all bloody, with tears just streaming down his face. And I knew, I knew that it was hopeless. And um, so they decided that the best thing to do was to bring the mattress from the private quarters and put it in into the room so that they can move his body there so he can they can lie him down and so they move his body there and my poor mom crawled over to him and sat cradling his head asking for rags so we can she can put his head because he, he was bleeding so profusely and when those rags would be soaked with blood, she would ask for more. And, and then she got so uh, dizzy at some point that she uh, laid his head down on the mattress and she, you know, crawled back to where she had been sitting. So I went over and I knelt down next to him, you know, and I uh, was with him when he took his last breath. Uh, we were just waiting out the time for the rescue plane to show up the next morning. That was part one of my interview with Sinta Kaipat. In our next segment, she'll talk about how she came to take her father's place as an advocate for Pagan. You're listening to the Alternative Zero Project, which was edited by Jack Doyle and funded in part by the Institute for Journalism and Natural Resources and Marianas Variety. Want the latest news on the Alternative Zero Coalition? You can listen to more episodes on the Marianas Variety website or shoot us an email at alternativezeroproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.